I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is brought to you from Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school, Crawford School of Public Policy. Now, if you want to deepen your knowledge on policy, you want to get into a policy-facing role, you should come and join us as a student here at Crawford School. We have got a wide range of short courses and degrees with fantastic specialisations available for you. You can check them all out at crawford.anu edu.au forward slash study and we look forward to seeing you here. Now you know her as a professor here at Crawford School as the editor of our Poverty in Focus section on Policy Forum or perhaps as the ANU lead of the amazing Individual Deprivation Measure Project but we know Sharon Bessel now as one of Australia's Women of Influence after the Glitzy Award Ceremony in Sydney for uh, the Australian Financial Review's uh, Women of Influence Awards. Sharon, welcome back. And how was the ceremony? Thanks, Martin. It's great to be here. The ceremony was the ceremony was actually fantastic. I, I must say, I I wasn't I wasn't convinced it would be a fabulous event. You never know with these things, but it was terrific. It was really beautifully done, and having the opportunity to hear about some of the things that women are achieving across a whole range of issues, from public policy to innovation, um, hearing from young leaders, it was just inspirational and quite awe-inspiring to hear what what some people are doing. Um, the overall winner, the Australian um, Woman of Influence, um, is working on vaccines, making vaccines and immunisations available um, both in Australia but globally. There are people working on developing solar cells. There are people working on childhood cancer treatment and prevention, just an amazing range of things going on. So it was a real privilege to be able to meet some of those women and to hear about that work. Like you say, there's a, a lot of incredibly uh, inspirational women on that list, including you, Sharon. So on behalf of all the team, congratulations again. We are all so proud of you and think you're a very uh, worthy and deserved winner of that recognition. Well, th- thank you very much for that. I, I guess like many of the women that were there last night and um, – As they all pointed out, or as we all pointed out, no one ever achieves anything as an individual. You know, everything that happens, happens because of teamwork. And in Crawford, we've got some amazing people and some amazing teams doing incredible stuff. So... Yeah, it's a good place to be here at Crawford. Now, I want to turn from the glitz and glamour of awards ceremony to something quite different. Last week, Australia marked its annual Anti-Poverty Week to help find ways to reduce national poverty. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And in fact, Sharon, we've seen lots of activity on your Poverty in Focus section on Policy Forum, haven't we? Yeah, this is about as far away from the the glitz and glamour of the Star Entertainment Centre as as you could possibly get. Um, 
We've had some incredible pieces on um, Poverty and Focus over the last week, and there are still more to come. Uh, we've had a range of issues covered, from focusing on issues around child poverty and, and how we need to rethink the way we approach child poverty, homelessness, um, period poverty, which is an issue that at last is getting more attention of the way in which menstruation impacts on women's lives um, and, and on their experience of poverty. There is one incredibly powerful piece that I would really encourage people to read. If you read nothing else, have a look at the piece by Moraine Roberts. Um, Moraine works with um, ATD Fourth World, which is an organisation, a global organisation. Moraine is based in the UK. They've been doing research over the past couple of years um, on people's experiences of poverty. And Moraine herself has experienced poverty throughout her life. She lives with a disability. She writes an incredibly powerful piece about the way in which we respond to poverty. She makes a case for thinking about poverty as a human rights issue of an issue of human dignity. Um, and she does it from her own experience. It's a really powerful piece. I'd encourage people to, to take a look at that one, but to look at all the pieces. There are some, some, um, there's some really important um, things being written in Poverty and Focus over the last week. Yeah, lots of great pieces. It was a terrific piece on homelessness, which I really enjoyed. Did you read that one? It was a terrific piece. And of course, that's one of the most pressing issues globally, but particularly in Australia at the moment. And I think we're going to pick up on some of those issues in the conversation we're about to have. Now, before we get to that, I want to pick up on something we did last week, which of course was uh, we recorded our first ever live Policy Forum pod episode, thanks to the brilliant team at ANU Learning Communities, um, and especially Maddie, who put so much work into that. We had the opportunity to sit down with Four leading experts, four fantastic folk, Imrad Ahmad, Liz Hanna, John Hewson and Shane Rattenbury to talk about whether Australia should declare a nationwide climate emergency. If you'd like to listen to last week's episode, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I really enjoyed it. What about you, Sharon? Have you recovered from it? It was such fun. It was a great experience. I'll just, just to share a small secret with our listeners – Martin and I were just a little bit nervous in the lead up to it. The thought of a live pod in front of a big audience we where things can go very well. We, we were, were terrified. terrified. We were really terrified. It went incredibly well. It was such an engaged audience, um, both during the discussion, but afterwards, you know, people were just so keen to hear more, to learn more, to share their own views. Um, so that is a pod really worth listening to. And I just wanted to, to say as well, Martin, just what an incredible job the team um, at the ANU did, you know, Maddie and, and learning communities, but also our team here and Julie Ariane work, Julia Arendt's work in um, preparing for that and leading up to it was just phenomenal. And that's why it was such a great success, you know, people putting in so much effort beforehand. And uh, we had lots of interactive elements to it. So we used a, a, a website where people could vote on the questions that we put out in there. And huge thanks to Lydia Kim, who did so much work on that. And one of the really interesting things was we asked audiences for their questions. and We were absolutely 
inundated with questions. Uh, And unfortunately, we weren't able to get to all of those. So listeners, we kind of need your help with this. If you jump onto our Facebook podcast group, we're Policy Forum Pod on there, you will find that we are running a poll at the moment. We would really appreciate you voting on, on what we do about those questions that we didn't get to ask on the night, because there were loads of great questions in there. So the options might be, perhaps we invite those panelists back and we record a studio version uh, of that of that event where we just pose those questions or perhaps we ask them to write a written piece for Policy Forum, the website, um, or perhaps you've got other ideas about how we go about um, getting our panellists to respond to some of those questions that we weren't able to get to on the night. So jump on the Facebook group and let us know your thoughts. We'd be really keen to hear them. Yeah, I think there's so much to follow up on and so many ways we could do it. So it would be great to hear from people on that. So today in the wake of Anti-Poverty Week and as part of our Poverty in Focus section, we're going to be taking a closer look at poverty in Australia and particularly at Australia's income support and housing policy and what they're really doing for, for people. In less than three decades, about a quarter of the world has risen out of extreme poverty. But the definition of extreme poverty is incredibly low. It's set at $1.90 per person per day, and that's based on the national income levels or the national poverty lines of 15 of the world's poorest countries. If we were to increase that poverty line to just $3.20 a day, about a quarter of the world's population would be living in poverty. If we increased it to $5.50 a day, about half the world's population would be living in poverty. So while we've achieved incredible things in terms of global poverty reduction, in part since the adoption of the Millennium Development Goals in 2000, we've still got a very long way to go in terms of addressing poverty globally. And we've also got a long way to go in Australia. In Australia, we have seen a decrease in poverty over the last 15 years, but compared to other OECD countries, Australia has an an above-average poverty rate, which indicates that we could be doing things better. And there are particular challenges for some groups, children, for example, um, and particularly for Indigenous communities. Most of the recent figures that we have suggest that homelessness has increased by about 5% since 2011, and more and more people have been calling on the government to increase national income support payments, particularly New Start, which is set at what is widely agreed to be an incredibly low rate, and the call has been that New Start needs to be increased by between $75 and $100 a week. So today we're going to take a look at just how effective Australia's anti-poverty policies have been and what we could be doing differently. That's a really important question. And to answer that question, we have assembled a stellar panel, a panel I'm really excited to have in the studio. Uh, first is John Fowlson. We've had John on the pod before. He is a senior fellow of inequality and social justice at per capita. He was also the national CEO of the St. Vincent de Paul Society from 2006 to 2018. And as we discussed on the last pod, he's also a noted poet. Maybe we'll get some poetry 
Territory today. Uh, with John is Professor Matthew Gray. Matthew is the Director of the Australian Centre for Applied Social Research Methods. He's also the Director of Research at the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. And last, but certainly not least, we're joined by Nicole Wiggins. Now, Nicole is the Director of the Early Morning Centre in Canberra. She has worked in the community sector in the ACT for more than 20 years. Now, the Early Morning Centre, in fact, I'm delighted to say, is one of the Canberra region charities that Crawford School is partnering with this year to raise funds for and awareness about the amazing work that they do. The centre supports those in Canberra who are at risk of experiencing homelessness as well as those experiencing social isolation. It's a vital role that they play in the Canberra community and we're delighted to uh, do whatever we can to support them. And listener, if you would like to do whatever you can to support their work, you can donate to the charity. Just find the link in the show notes for this podcast. We'll leave it there and anything that you chip in will go straight to the charity and will really help their work. So we couldn't be more excited to have Nicole, Matthew and John all here with us today. So let's just get straight into it, shall we? Yep. Let's hear what they've got to say. Well, it's great to have everybody in the studio. So firstly, hello, Nicole. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Matthew Gray, it's wonderful to have you in the studio. Yeah, thank you for having me here today. And John Fowlson, welcome back. Good to be here. It's terrific to have you all here. So I want to start off this discussion with a sort of overview of poverty in Australia uh, and take a quick look at what poverty looks like in the country. So according to ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services, more than one in eight people, 13.2%, live below the poverty line once you take housing costs into account. That's around three million people. It's a staggering percentage of the Australian population. And according to ACOS as well, more than half of these people rely on social security payments as a main source of income. The problem though is that most major income support payments in Australia are below what we call the poverty line or half the median household disposable income. So I want to start off a question to all of you, but perhaps I'll go to you first, John. Are things getting worse in Australia when it comes to poverty or have they always been this way? Um, I started working in the community sector around 1994, which was um, coincidentally the last time we saw an increase in real terms uh, for the New Start payment, uh, although it was called something different at the time. Uh, the big change that I have noticed is that um, the the uh, the social security payments are not providing social security. Uh, in fact, they're uh, uh, leaving people with a sense of social insecurity. But the, the, the really interesting thing that this uh, conjoins with is what's happening in the labour market. So there used to be a time when, when people could safely say, uh, you know, if, if at least I get a job, that that's the pathway out of poverty. Now, because of the precarious 
increasingly precarious and casualised nature of the labour market. Uh, it's the, the 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 boundary line between paid being in paid work and being out of paid work is increasingly disappearing. And so, you know, I think we're in a, a really serious situation when it comes to, uh, you know, people going out of the frying pan and into the fire. Uh, they're they're struggling on social security payments. They're struggling on uh, slightly better but still precarious and insufficient income uh, in the lower end of the labour market. One cannot help but think the two are quite deliberately connected. More about this later. So very low levels of payments, much greater opportunity to f- for people to find themselves in poverty. Matt, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, I mean, the poverty rate is about one in eight, 13, 14%. Um, and how you measure uh, poverty is a very contested topic. So if you look at something like experiencing multiple financial hardships, you find it's about 16% of the population at a point in time. If you take a measure like um, experiencing both poverty and financial hardships, you get about uh, one in 20. Um, and so I think that uh, poverty is a significant issue. Uh, I think that the depth of poverty for certain groups has increasing a lot. If you take it as a population as a whole, we've had strong income growth. Uh, many people have done very well, but there are groups of people who are uh, falling behind, who are experiencing increasing depths of poverty, uh, increasing financial hardship, and certainly the rate of new start has fallen from something like 90% of the age pension in the 19. 19- 93 or so, to about 60%. And it's pretty clear that the level of Newstart has got to a level where you cannot live on your own on Newstart. You have to be living with other people. Um, many people, you know, very um, unstable housing. Uh, and they're in a position where even if they uh, had some of the skills to get a job, uh, they're in a position where they're so impoverished that it's, it's almost impossible to see how they could find employment. We've picked up on a couple of things I want to return to there in regards to New Start and regards to, regards to how we go about measuring poverty, because I'm sure Sharon will have some thoughts about that as well. But before we do that, I just want to turn to you, Nicole. You've been working in, in the homelessness sector for you know more than two decades. What's your personal experience of that question? Are things getting worse or is it just that there's a greater focus on these things? Uh, yeah, no, Jeff, things are definitely getting worse. Um, the price of rental accommodation is just well out of the reach of people on a new start allowance. Uh, people who do have employment, um, like we're speaking about the casual employment and the low rates of pay, it's, um, you know, the private rental market is so high. It leaves people in an incredibly precarious situation where they're, you know, one or two paychecks away from, from being homeless, from, um, you know, living rough on the street. Uh, at the early morning centre, we provide breakfast five mornings a week. And there are people who absolutely rely on our breakfast, like they wouldn't eat regularly if they didn't come along to our breakfast. And we also provide lunch three days a week. So there are people, yeah, completely relying on our services that just would not survive without those services. And there's a number of other services in Canberra that provide food and uh, support like food parcels that people absolutely need to, yeah, they just wouldn't be surviving without those services and help. So would you say it's got dramatically worse in the time that you've been working in this field? 
Um, it seems to have gotten worse. It's sort of, it's a bit difficult to measure. I think services have become more accessible and we're doing better at, I think, promoting our services and advertising. So it's a bit hard to sort of say, like we've had a dramatic increase in numbers in the last couple of years, but we've also increased the number of services we provide and the promotion of our services. So I think it's a little bit of both around why we've had such a dramatic increase. We've already sort of noted in passing, and, and Matt, you made the point that um, the way in which we measure poverty is contested. And in Australia, we tend to focus on income for very good reason that that matters. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether we, we measure poverty in the right way in Australia to have enough information to be able to respond, and whether we do have sufficient information for policymakers and for service providers to be able to respond. Um, income tells us something. It doesn't necessarily tell us about the structural factors that prevent people from moving out of poverty. Um, and John, you've, you've started to talk about some of those issues. Um, in other parts of the world, there have been debates about moving towards a more multi-dimensional assessment of poverty that may be taking account of things like health and um, education, the way the multidimensional um, poverty index does. We've been doing some work through the individual deprivation measure in the global south, where we take account of things like relationships, whether you're also exposed to violence, whether you can make decisions about your own life. Um, John, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on some of these debates as they relate to Australia. Is income enough or do we need to be assessing other dimensions of poverty, um, the structural issues or things like shame and stigma mm. um, that often really impact on people's mm. lives? Uh, you know, my, my biggest beef with the status quo is um, we have enough information to know how to begin to address those structural causes. We, the bleeding obvious is staring us in the face. Uh, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit like the story of, you know, someone asking directions and their interlocutor saying, yeah, well, well you know, you want to get to such and such a place. Well, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, you know, we are, we are being bombarded with excuses, uh, as to why we cannot start from where we are. And, you know, you're quite right. There are many dimensions to poverty and inequality. Uh, material deprivation is, is an absolutely fundamental one. And I don't think we should in any way, um, you know, reduce the significance of that. But as you, as you quite correctly point out, the, the shaming, the stigma, the degradation, the humiliation, the disempowerment, particularly that comes with some of the neo-paternalistic measures, such as cashless welfare card, compulsory income management, mandatory drug testing, uh, you know, some of those measures that do absolutely nothing to lift people up. In fact, it, they put them down. Uh, so, you know, we've got all these starting points apart from the most significant starting point, which is to address the income inadequacy. You know, we talk about income management instead of income adequacy, to talk about the fundamental of having a place to call home. Uh, you know, uh, you know, as Nicole was, was saying, you know, if you haven't got a place to call home, you can't, it's very difficult to take care, to get a job or to keep a job, to, to engage in education, whether you're a child or an adult, uh, to take care of your health, um, to form relationships, to be connected socially. 
all of those things, you know, we've got to get those building blocks right. We know what they are. We don't need for, you know, I'm, I'm all in favour of analysis and you're quite right to talk about the structural drivers and we know what the structural drivers are and they're completely uh, interwoven with the neoliberal dogma that we have been subjected to, which has resulted in the dismantling in effect, of social infrastructure, along with attacks on working people, uh, attacks on the union movement, but also attacks on the the, the stability uh, that was uh, part of the labour market in the past. And I'm not being nostalgic here. But if you combine all of these things together, you have the structural causes of inequality. We know how to address it. What we lack is the political will. Matt, I'd be be interested to hear your thoughts on this issue. Do we have sufficient information on which to base decisions? Is it information that's lacking or is it political will that's lacking? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of data on poverty, on financial hardship. But I think that a lot of the data is poorly understood. So, for example, if you take poverty, those poverty numbers include quite significant numbers of older people with very substantial assets who have very low income. They do not experience financial hardship. And so I strongly agree with the need for multidimensional needs, uh, multidimensional measures of poverty, because I think that income on its own is a very poor measure. Uh, There are people who uh, would not be in income poverty, but who experience very significant hardships. They might have, for example, uh, caring for somebody with a significant disability, for example, which would be very expensive, uh, post-divorce. You know, the very you know, amount of debts and housing costs and so on. So I think these sort of transition points. So I, I do think that there is clearly enough evidence that they should be increasing the rate of unemployment benefits and related allowances. I mean, it's fallen so dramatically. Uh, the proportion of people on Newstart have been on income support payments for over a year has gone up from 50% to 75% over a decade. You know, if you're unemployed for 10 weeks, you can have a pretty low Newstart probably not too bad. It's kind of a justification around that. But when you've got people on these sort of payments who are there for on low payments for long periods of time, I mean, I haven't got the figures here, but it's quite a substantial proportion over five years. You know, assets run down. Um, it's, it's very um, uh, significant, that impact. And I think the increasing conditionality is an issue as, as well. Uh, we've done work on evaluating you know, income management in the Northern Territory, for example. And people are getting increasing layers of conditions put on themselves. If you've got children, you could be there's requirements around vaccination. Now, I personally support those requirements, but of course, uh, many of those who don't get their children vaccinated, uh, some of it's sort of an objection, but some of it's their lives is a difficult thing to achieve. Um, or they may not be able to demonstrate they've been immunized. Uh, they might have uh, conditions related to child protect, child protections, you know, child maltreatment and so on. Uh, they could be subject to income management. Um, and when, you know, potentially things like drug testing being talked about, they've got all their activity requirements, job search. So when you start to layer all those obligations on people who, one of the reasons why they're, uh, for, for many people being on uh, payments are that you know, they've had bad things happen in their lives or they might have mental health or been in a violent relationship or something like that. And then people are most vulnerable, the most vulnerable time of their life, you start to impose all these conditions on top of very low payments. It becomes, um, the weight of it on people is huge and it becomes almost impossible for them to function in a way where they can try and improve their situation. 
in many cases. So I, I'd like to get your views on on this, Nicole, because I think what Matt's talking about there is not just the kind of very low rates of no, new start, but these arguably sort of punitive measures that we impose on people who are trying to get themselves back into the workforce and drag themselves out of poverty. What's your experience of that like at the coal phase? How does that kind of play out in terms of people's health and well-being? Um, yeah, sure. These these punitive measures being talked about are certainly adding to the stigma and discrimination and, you know, loneliness that people feel. Um, you know, people are very socially isolated. They're on very low incomes. They, they can't afford to be members of clubs. They can't afford to go out and do social activities. Um, there's more and more requirements being put on people where, you know, it's almost now being unemployed is almost a full-time job in meeting all the requirements and jumping through all the hoops and, you know, people don't have the money to meet these requirements. Um, so, yeah, it makes it really very difficult. And being in the community sector for over 20 years, I've definitely seeing this generational, like we're seeing now people's children coming through um, with the same health issues, the same mental health issues, the same alcohol and other drug issues. So, um, yeah, it's really quite a sort of serious problem. I mean, one of the really worrying issues which I don't think there is good data on at the moment, but there is anecdotal evidence, is that some people are deciding not to take up their entitlements because, you know, especially in the context, for example, of the robo-debt, you know, they say, well, yeah, I've heard um, people tell me that, you know, for example, a single mother who's reluctant to take benefits because in 10 years' time they might get a bill for 30000 where they've tried to do the right thing, they've got no idea how it's happened, and the onus is on them to demonstrate that they don't owe the money. And um, so I think that's one of the real risks is that, you know, it, it used to be the case that we had almost universal take-up of benefits, I think. There weren't many people who wouldn't take a benefit. But now we're getting to a situation where that's a real risk, I think, and it's something which we don't really have very good data on, is how many people are not taking up their entitlements and relying on family, friends, charity, which is, in my view, a very, very negative outcome. It's a very worrying de development. Can I comment on that? Yeah. Um, so at the Early Morning Centre, we have a number of rough sleepers. I wouldn't have the numbers, but something perhaps 20, even 30, who are not on benefits. They're just, that you know, the restrictions are so tough, the requirements they have to meet, um, that they're just unable to sort of manage to get in and, you know, to get to the interviews, to fill in all the forms. Um, it's just too hard and difficult and so they're just not on benefits. They've given up. I think the those sorts of issues bring a whole new justice dimension to what it is to be poor. You know, justice is all uh, poverty is always a social justice issue. But when we start to see these kinds of structural issues playing out that prevent people from getting support, then that concept of justice becomes so much more acute. I wanted to to take us um, now to to look at a particular some of the particular groups of people who face poverty. Um, and when we think about the social justice implications of poverty, it's often children that we focus on because it has immediate consequences in their lives. It also has long-term consequences if children grow up in poverty. Um, and in Australia, while we see a number of groups who are dramatically affected by poverty, children are particularly affected. The figures tell us that um, more than one in six children now live below the poverty line after housing is taken into account. Um, if we look at children who are living in sole parent families, they're three times more likely to experience poverty than their peers who grow up in couple families. Nicole, I'm, I'm interested to hear 
your experiences of the people that you support and that you work with on a daily basis in terms of how both homelessness and poverty impacts on children's lives um, and how it impacts on parents when they're struggling to support their their children? Um, sure. Well, we actually see an older cohort at the Early Morning Centre. Um, and most of our clients are uh, over 45, about 60% are over 45. We don't have children at the Early Morning Centre. Um, it's just um, not particularly a, a great environment for children. And I think a lot of the, and it's the same at the other free food places where people can get a free meal in Civic in the nighttime. There's not a lot of children and families that go to them. So they're particularly disadvantaged because, um, you know, people don't want to take their children there because they're, they're scared. There's people who've been drinking alcohol or they're people with mental health issues. There can be arguments. Um, you know, they're not ma- massive problems at these places, but that, yeah, people are sort of excluded with children. So the people we see um, who have had children no longer have those children. Those children are in care. John, what's your experience of the kinds of supports that are available to people with children? And also your experience on that point that Nicole makes of so often one of the the consequences of poverty, and it's often almost a punishment for poverty, is that children end up being removed from their families because their families are not coping. What's your experience of the supports oh, look, that are you know, available? You know, it, it's a heartbreaking scenario when you when you look at the whole. Um, <clears throat> the thing to remember, though, is uh, you know, in, in a lot of the commentary on the effects of poverty and inequality on children, there is a highly moralising gendered and sexist discourse going on. Uh, very, very dangerous. And again, completely ignoring the bleeding obvious, which is, you know, why people, uh, adults and therefore their children are experiencing, are bearing the brunt of inequality in a very wealthy society in a prosperous economy like ours. And so, you know, you, you ignore all of that. And of course, you, you know, you, you focus on behavior, you know, so-called behavioral issues, bad parents. And so this gives rise to this out, outcrop of, of again, hideously uh, patronizing and paternalistic uh, programs uh, you know we've we've gone through a few of them parents next is a is another one of course the targeting of sole parents uh, you know is, is just something that we have seen in various iterations by by different governments I mean sadly we saw you know from the the previous labor government the shifting of that whole cohort of sole parents onto the lower new start payment so uh, you know if, if we fail at all, boils down to uh, where we want to shine the light. You know, it's like that story of the guy on his hands and knees, uh, you know, lo- looking for something under under a street light, and someone comes along and says, you know, uh, can I help you? you know, what have you lost? You know, I've, I've lost my key. You know, did you did you drop it here? He goes, no, no, uh, I dropped it down the road. Why are you looking for it here? Oh, because this is where the light is. Uh, and too often we shine a light where we want to on behavioural so issues, for example, and we completely bypass where the problem lies, the, the structural causes, the fact that there is insufficient housing, the fact that our social security system lets people down because uh, it, it's becoming increasingly designed to punish and humiliate rather than to support, the fact that there are not enough jobs 
uh, for people who want them. The fact that uh, you know the the kind of services you are referring to have been priced out of the reach because of increasing marketization of every aspect of our lives. Matt, what what's some of the data telling us around these issues of of children and their families living in poverty? I mean, I think the really key issue is the changes to um, parenting payment single. So it used to be the case that parent, single parents would receive parenting payment single until the youngest child was 15. And the idea was that you were caring for the child and so therefore um, you know, didn't have the same activity requirements upon it uh, and um, was paid at a substantially higher rate as a, a, a pension payment rather than an allowance payment. And, I mean, the, the logic of that is okay because in a sense the, the logic of putting – Work requirements, I think, is reasonable because uh, we know that if people are at the workforce for a long period of time, it can be very hard to re-enter and you end up with a lot of women who would enter later middle age and, and older and they'd be in a lot of poverty. So I think that trying to skill up people and encourage them to be able to find work as the children grow up, if they've got the capacity, is a very good thing. The problem was that under the Howard government, 2006 changes, welfare to work, uh, they uh, new entrants to parenting payment single, uh, were not eligible um, for uh, the single parents were not eligible for the parenting payment single once the youngest child was eight, and they had to go on to New Start, which is a much lower rate. And then the uh, Labor government uh, sort of doubled down on that. They then ended the grandfathering provision so that those who've been on the system for some time had to come off single. Uh, parent pension and onto much lower payment rates. And so it was a combination of then activity requirements, uh, greater enforcement of those, and um, the substantial lowering of the payment rate that has uh, very clearly led to very substantial increases in poverty and deep poverty experienced by families with children. Uh, you know, the family benefit system in Australia is relatively generous, actually. Um, yeah, so if you look at single parents receive, with younger children receiving the parenting payment single, the poverty rates are not nearly so high. Um, and and it's, there are other policies too, like increasing the um, age of age pension eligibility, uh, which again um, is um, going to be sixty-seven, I think, shortly. Uh, sixty-six at the moment, it'll be sixty-seven, and and you know, so people are being expected to be on these much lower allowance payments uh, right up into older age when the chances of getting a job are, are very. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Very low indeed. And so it is definitely both sides of politics. You know, uh, the Labor Party were very keen on uh, income management. Um, you know, the, the minister, the social security minister of the Labor government um, you know, was a great advocate for income management. Um, so it was both sides of politics which are, are responsible for the current situation. I was just going to, to to jump in, not with a question, but just to share some research that that we did um, in several disadvantaged communities in New South Wales, the ACT and Queensland, um, where we were talking with children about what makes a strong and supportive community for them. 
And one of the things the children of primary school age talked about in great detail was the pressure on their parents, um, the pressure on their parents to go and to seek work or to take what you've described, John, as often very precarious work, work at, at unsociable times. And children talked in great detail about the impacts of that on their relationships with their parents, on the time their parents had available for them and the way that diminished their quality of life. And when we think about the contribution that people make to society, when we think about work, we tend to only think about paid work. And so what we often don't take into account is the really important unpaid work that parents do in raising their children and certainly the importance of that role beyond the age of eight. And that seems to have been entirely missed in recent um, policy debates, but it's something that children are able to talk about in a very articulate way because it impacts so negatively on them. Matt, I want to come back to Newstart now. There was some research that came out recently that found that Australia's income support, Newstart, uh, ranks last compared to its 36 OECD peers once you take rate renting assistance into consideration. Over the last year, we've seen a lot of discussion, um, community discussion, political discussion around the Newstart rate, and there does seem to be a broad consensus that the rate is too low. But despite that, there's been precious little impetus from politicians to actually go about changing it. So how do we go about fixing it? What is the appropriate rate? It's interesting that when you look at the there's a Senate inquiry at the moment into the adequacy of New Start. And if you look at the submission that's been made by a, a number of government agencies over combined submission led by Department of Social Services, uh, that submission makes virtually no mention of poverty financial hardship. I mean, I think it mentions poverty once in terms of a goal, uh, but nothing about your know, adequacy, uh, living standards, financial hardships. If you contrast that to the 2012 inquiry, a uh, submission from the same department, um, had 20 pages, which um, yeah, very detailed analysis really related to adequacy. If you go back to discussions about uh, adequacy of single rate of age pension relative to the couple rate, the Harmer review. It wasn't in terms of poverty, but it was in terms of adequacy. So I, I think poverty is a, a powerful language, but I would also think that we should also have a discussion about adequacy, um, which is another way of coming at it. So I, I think you know, the evidence is there. Um, there's obviously political factors. I think the arguments against it, you know, budget impact, it's not all that great. There's not that many people on Newstart really. I think... Um, you know, workforce incentives, it's so low that you could increase it $100 a week and I don't think you'd erode workforce incentives very much. Uh, it's a short-term payment. Uh, the evidence for that is people on it for long periods of time. So to me, the evidence is there. I mean, it's, I'm not a politician. Uh, I think in part, um, some of the stories that are now coming out, uh, that, that sort of lived experience of people, um, I think it's incredibly important. Uh, you know, the various shows on TV, uh, Struggle Street and so on. So I think it's hard because you don't want to kind of stigmatise people and um, shame people. But on the other hand, I think, you know, people really don't relate to, I think, you know, and, you know, I think for many people, there are only two or three really bad decisions away from being homeless. You know, it could happen to any of us. And I think that this idea of that social insurance and uh, safety nets being being lost and we are too ready to say, oh, that people are morally culpable for their own situation. And when you look at it, I mean, yeah, some people do make bad decisions, but you know, often a lot of bad luck's involved and um, you know, when you're when you're in poverty, of course, it's the evidence is that it has um 
impacts that make it harder to make sensible decisions when you're very stressed. You know, it is actually genuinely harder to make a rational decision um, when, you, when you are in extremely difficult situations. John, what are your thoughts about tackling I, I, I think I think the big question is how you frame how you frame things, uh, you know, and that was really interesting what, what Matt, um, what Matt uh, outlined as far as different um, government submissions on this question are concerned. Uh, so the way the question is currently framed vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, income adequacy is, yeah, let, let's forget the income adequacy and let's talk about, you know, the, the neoliberal discourse currently championed by by the the current federal government is that well you know if you need benefits you are failing not only yourself but the rest of society you're the leaner and everyone else all the all the people who are supporting you through their taxpayer dollars uh, deserve better than for you to sit on your backside and receive this uh, for nothing it completely flies in the face of reality of course it infers that uh, you know a, a, a inability to get a job is somehow a, an unwillingness to work. And so, again, that whole behavioural frame is imposed. At the same time, of course, uh, it's okay to dole out massive tax cuts to the wealthy and corporations who don't need it. Uh, but, you know, every cent is begrudged to those who are desperate, who are waging a daily battle for survival from below the poverty line. The, the the big the big thing that's missing in all of this is is the old uh, old fashioned class analysis. Uh, we forget that the people experiencing unemployment, for example, are residualized members of the working class. Are people who uh, you know, are of a piece with those who are struggling in the labour market. But the neoliberal uh, discourse is all about trying to hive them off and say to the to the people who are working in that precarious work, oh, you know, your taxpayer dollars are go going to, to help that person who's not working while you're working really hard, rather than addressing the injustices that lay both in the labour market and are increasingly perpetrated uh, in the social security system. So how you frame the question, uh, you know, whether you frame it in terms of um, the interests of the already wealthy, or if you frame it in terms of, uh, yeah, what makes a decent society where no one goes without the basics of life, a place to live, a place to work for those who can work, income adequacy for those who cannot, a place to heal, a place to learn, a place to connect. All of these things we want for ourselves. Uh, why, why could we not want them for everyone else? Nicole, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this issue of the language that's used. You know, John referred to the language of lifters and leaners that <coughs> was famously introduced by the, the former treasurer. And there has, it seems, increasingly been a, a rather rather moralising and judgmental language used about people who are struggling. What are the real-life impacts of that kind of language, of that kind of framing on the people that you work with? How does that impact on their lives and their their view of themselves? Um, yeah, look, it has a, a massive impact on, on, you know, on their view of themselves, on, on their self-esteem. Um, you know, it makes people unwilling to seek help. They feel ashamed to seek help. Um, so they're people, they're already suffering, you know, mental health issues, uh, poor, just poor physical health, poor mental health, poor dental health. And then, you know, this language of shaming them and making them feel even worse is just contributing to and just, uh, you know, increasing their problems, increasing their, their 
um, mental health, like just decreasing and, and getting worse rather than getting better. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of labelling language that's used that's really not useful at all, and it, and it's really quite untrue because people, you know, people are trying hard to get jobs, um, and you know, as I was saying before, it can be a full time job being unemployed, meeting all, all the different requirements, and um, and it's quite you know difficult for people. And if people have been the longer people have been unemployed, the poorer they get. They um, their clothes deteriorate, their shoes deteriorate, their health deteriorate. And it, um, you know, it makes it sort of more difficult again. And then their mental health deteriorates. So it just keeps sort of snowballing and increasing. We've had a lot of debates in Australia around New Start and around the, 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 the current rate and whether it should be raised. Of course, the other issue that's been debated recently in Australia is around housing and housing affordability. And we're increasingly seeing low-income households who are renting under incredible stress as the cost of housing increases. By definition, a household that finds itself under housing stress when its income falls below the bottom 40% of Australia's income distribution and when it spends more than 30% of its income on housing costs. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, in 2017, 43% of low-income households found themselves under housing stress. That's almost half of low-income households and 8% more than 10 years ago. So we're seeing something going very wrong here. On top of this, Australia's Productivity Commission recently reported that after paying rent, 170,000 Australian households are left with less than $35 a week to spend on other living costs. Following this, the Senate has called for a revision of the Commonwealth Rent Assistance on the grounds that the current provisions don't reflect the rise in housing costs. Nicole, to to come back to you again, at the Early Morning Centre, where you're really working at the coalface of homelessness, what are you seeing in terms of the way people are experiencing housing stress but then the way people are experiencing homelessness. Uh, yeah, so, you know, the the cost of rental accommodation is just extremely high in Canberra. A review done just in the last 12, maybe 24 months showed that, that uh, there was about 1% of properties available to people on Centrelink. So, you know, that's just extraordinary low number. Uh, and as I was saying earlier, you know, people coming in to have breakfast each morning, to have lunch, um, they absolutely have to do this to supplement their income and because it's just not adequate. They're paying so much money in rent or they've be, they've given up. They've been unable to afford rent anymore. So they're sleeping in their car, they're sleeping on the street, they're couch surfing or they're in severely overcrowded dwellings. Uh, just, you know, because it's just inadequate. The, the Centrelink payments and New Start allowance payments are just inadequate for people to maintain tenancies. And then once people uh, do fall into homelessness, it becomes a cycle. It's similar to long-term <coughs> unemployment. Um, the longer people are homeless, the more likely they are to stay homeless and um, they fall into this long-term cycle. Matt, is there a systemic flaw in Australia's approach to designing housing policy, are we getting things fundamentally wrong? Oh, it's not really my expertise. I mean, I think there is clearly issues in the private rental market. Uh, interestingly, when we ask the question, if you had an objective of minimising the poverty gap within the current 
social security expenditure and we would optimize payments, what would happen to payments? And what we find is that we estimate you would increase new start by $100 a week and you would pay for that by reducing age pension and you would only very slightly increase rent assistance. And the reason is that new start is much more targeted to poverty than rent assistance. So I think the fundamental issue is the level of new start and allowances and they should be increased rather than trying to deal with them uh, through uh, target, you know, rent assistance. Now, of course, that's with if you had no extra money. Um, if you're going to put extra money in, then you might. But in terms of housing, I mean, you've got to remember that uh, yeah, house prices have gone up a lot, but interest rates are also at extremely low levels in Australia. So for many people, you know, housing affordability, housing stress, you know, it was extremely high, for example, and I don't know when we're just rates really high in the sort of Mid nineties, you know, the late 80s, mid early nineties, your interest rates of what, how much, John? 18? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a bit young to remember that, but, um, just a few years too young to remember that, but, but I do remember my economics. And, and you think I'm old enough to remember? <laughs> Only <laughs> fractionally older than yeah, me. Yeah, I wasn't, yeah. in, <laughs> I was at university, but I wasn't in the housing market and or thinking about it. So, so clearly we have issues of also location of housing. So people are being forced to live. A long way out, away from where jobs are. You know, we're not building appropriate public transport and so on to enable people to get where jobs are. Uh, I think there's evidence that people with very low incomes are moving to regional centres where they can get very cheap housing, but there are very limited uh, opportunities and they may well be isolated from their support networks. And I think, you know, people on very low incomes, those support networks are, are more important than for almost anyone. So there are issues of, um, in the housing market, but I, I, think that the fundamental issues are the income issue rather than the housing market issue, uh, with the caveat that in terms of social housing, there are clearly uh, issues in that sector. John, Matt's highlighted a lot of issues there. I want you to imagine for a second that it wasn't that Scott Morrison and the coalition that uh, uh, won government, but you were prime minister. It was you at the dispatch box. What's one policy that we could create that <laughs> might help to tackle Australia's housing crisis? Uh, look, the you know the the absolute fundamental that we need is uh, to increase the quantum of social housing that is available. Uh, that is an absolute urgent need. Uh, we need to be proud of this as social infrastructure. Uh, we need to broaden the meaning of, of, uh, of, uh, public investment, government investment in affordable, appropriate, uh, accessible housing uh, because, you know, we need to reconsider. It's, it's, it's interesting, you know, um, the Australian popular psyche understands deep down, no matter how much privatisation and marketisation happens, we understand that with education and health, the buck stops with the government. We get that even though there are private providers of both and and profit is made of both, I think, much to our suffering if, if we continue down that path. Uh, but with housing, as fundamental as it is, we have always conceptualised it as something that is primarily a private good rather than a public good. And so we move away from, from that, from that notion that, uh, you know, government should be able to, should do what markets cannot. Markets very clearly are failing to provide adequate housing for people on low incomes, not just those on social security benefits, let me emphasize. And, you know, if you are in precarious work and you don't know from week to week what your income is going to be, you don't know whether you're going to be able to pay the rent. 
and in many cases you're not going to be able to pay the rent. If we go down the American path, we will we will see those tent cities of people who are working uh, two or three jobs and are unable to afford even modest housing. That is, that is the neoliberal trajectory. And so we need to completely turn that around. We need to invest in housing as something that everyone has a has a right to. Globally, we are seeing a very dangerous trend of financialization in the housing sector. Uh, we are seeing increasingly uh, housing as a speculative sport, as capital rather than as human right. That's what we need to change. We need to change the story. We need to change our priorities as far as how we invest. And we need to imagine a society where we actually use our resources so that no one's left out or locked out. So we're coming to the end of of our discussion today around poverty in Australia and what we need to do. Um, We've talked through some of the key issues facing particular groups in Australia, but also some of the policy issues around New Start, around housing policy. As we, we draw this conversation to an end... I wanted to ask each of you a twofold question about what we should do going forward. Um, the first part of that question is if you could advise the government, if you could be in Scott Morrison's ear this afternoon and give advice on the one thing that you think we need to do in Australia to improve anti-poverty policy, what would that piece of advice to government be? But I also wanted to ask a second part of the question, which is perhaps at a a more human level. Very often we see when all of us walk past someone in the street who's clearly homeless or clearly suffering poverty, we avert our eyes. (laughs) We walk past, we feel very uncomfortable. What we also don't see in Australia at present is an outcry about the trends in poverty. So the second thing I would ask you is what piece of advice would you give to our listeners who are not able to directly influence government policy, um, but are members of a community in which poverty is a serious problem? So what would be your piece of advice to government? And what would you say to our listeners about what they individually or collectively can do to try to focus greater attention on the problem of poverty in Australia. Um, Nicole, perhaps we could go to you first. Um, Sure. Yeah, look, that's a great question. Um, I think advice to the government on policy issues that, um, you know, housing and health and social inclusion, like they are human rights issues and we, you know, we need to be tackling these as human rights issues. Um, so, you know, increasing new start allowance, but also around, you know, job security and, um, you know, people having, having full-time employment rather than the casual employment, um, which is, yeah, the current sort of rising trend. So people have that security. And what would say to the listeners, I suppose just um, being part of sort of supporting those sort of policy changes that, you know, these things are a a human rights um, issue and that we we do need to address them. Australia is an affluent country. Um, There's people missing out on that and, you know, we need to bring everybody along. Um, there There is some great evidence from around the world of different programs that work and um, you know, there just needs to be political will to implement those. And so for listeners and people of the community to support government in making those changes. Matt, what are your thoughts both on policy and, and, and 
what <laughs> people need to do. Well, I, I think it is a policy I'd say that there needs to be a really serious look at the adequacy of payments and one of the key performance measures for uh, social security system should be adequacy. Uh, I'd also say that you've got to address uh, barriers and um, issues people face um, to try to uh, address a whole range of issues, raise human capital, because in the long run, I do think that helping people who, uh, in many situations, to be able to um, either find paid employment or to engage in a range of other ways in their community is really important. You know, where your money comes from does matter. And in terms of what I tell people, oh, that's tricky. I try to treat people as people and with decency and as I would with anybody else. And, um, and, you know, and to bear in mind that, you know, everybody is not that far, you know, from being in that situation themselves. John, it's not the, the last word, but the last word for this particular <laughs> podcast. What would your advice be? Well, well, for a start, I, I, um, I, I doubt very much uh, whether the Prime Minister would take this advice. And, and you know, let's be clear, uh, the advice has been offered time and time again. So, you know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the monarch who if only they knew what was happening to their subjects, they would respond with great, with great noblesse oblige. We're talking about a deliberate uh, agenda here, uh, which is all about disempowering uh, working people, including those who have been residualised and who are not in paid work. And so, you know, I don't offer this as advice. I, I would rather say, you know, we, uh, you know, my, my answer to the first question really uh, bleeds into the second, your second question about uh, about our listeners. Uh, and really, my my overarching answer is there has been no progressive uh, social reform that I can think of in Australia's history that has not been won by ordinary people collectively on the ground, uh, sometimes literally on the streets. Legislators and policymakers have played an important role in formulating and designing policies and good legislation, but it has to have been informed by analysed by and agitated for by the collective movement on the ground. If you are listening to this program, I suspect it's because you have an interest in social policy and hopefully in achieving social justice uh, because you know policy should not be seen as a fait accompli imposed from above, but something that is, you know, the, the feminist movement taught us the personal is political. Uh, let, let our policy be developed by people's lived experience let there be an actual democratisation of the process. And so listeners, uh, join in that collective movement for social change. The union movement, civil society movements, we're seeing an outpouring of, uh, of desire for addressing climate change. Uh, all of these movements are what produces actual social change in the long run. And uh, you know, under the guiding stars of struggle and hope, uh, we must believe that we can build a, a fairer society. Some very wise words to finish this there and some incredibly useful and practical advice both for policymakers and for our listeners. So I, all that remains is for me to say thank you so much to all three of you for coming in and sharing your insights and your expertise today. I found it a fantastic discussion. So many thanks, Nicole. Many thanks, Matthew. And many thanks, John. Thank you, everyone. You're welcome. Thank you.
Welcome back, listeners. So, listeners, what did you think of that discussion? Did you enjoy it as much as we did? Did you get as much out of it as we did? We are really keen to get your thoughts, get your comments, get your feedback. Uh, And, of course, you can reach out to us on Facebook, where we are, Policy Forum Pod. You can join the group there. We're on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum, or you can go old school and send us an email, podcast at policyforum.com. And if you have been inspired to want to to improve policies that tackle homelessness and poverty, you might want to check out Crawford's Master of Social Policy degree. You can find out all the information you need about that at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, for the first part of this final section, I want to go over a couple of comments and questions that we've had over the last week. The first is on the podcast interview that you did, Sharon, which is absolutely brilliant, the interview with Julian Burnside, where we invite Julian Burnside to talk about Australia's role in the establishment of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights and why there's so much hostility in the rhetoric surrounding refugees and asylum seekers. And in response to that question, Fitzroy777 wrote on Twitter, the same reason children are attacked for speaking out against climate change. It's easier to blame the victims than take responsibility. What do you make of that, Sharon? Yeah, it's a really interesting comment from Fitzroy 777, isn't it? And I think there are so many issues um, where we do need to think much more seriously about responsibility and how as a society, um, as a community, locally, nationally and globally, we take responsibility for issues. And I think we also heard a little bit of that in some of the closing remarks of our three podcast guests today um, about the way in which we think about poverty, for example. So I think more attention about how we take individual and collective responsibility for some really challenging issues is is an important one. Um, In relation to, to, just to to comment on the the discussion with Julian Burnside, if if our listeners haven't had a chance to have a listen to what Julian said yet, I'd really encourage them to do so. That was just such a fascinating discussion, such a range of issues that Julian covered. And he really does pick up on this issue of responsibility um, and who holds responsibility and importantly, why, why it matters to take responsibility for social justice issues. In our closing statements from our podcast guest today, they put forward lots of practical ideas about what individuals, what our podcast listeners can do to tackle some of those issues. But one idea that wasn't floated, it was this idea of writing to your MP, letting your MP on a regular basis know your views about that. Do you think that that's an effective means of uh, policy change, Sharon? I'm I'm not sure what the evidence might say on whether that's an effective means of policy change. There was some work done some years ago around the impact of petitions and whether um, parliamentarians respond well or not when they think it's a form letter that's being sent to them. Um, But of course, politicians are concerned about what their electorates say. We see an increasing focus on the um, the use of, of focus groups on polling to drive, you know, the position of political parties. So I would join Julian in saying, yes, write to your parliamentarian, make your voice heard. Um, it may be an effective way of changing 
policy or influencing policy, but it's also a way, one small way, of having your say in a democracy and beginning to try to hold parliamentarians to account and to let them know what it is that is important to people within the community. Now, the next one I want to pick up on is sort of a related question. It's in relation to the uh, Great Green debate that we put out last week. And as I said at the start of the podcast, it was fantastic to get uh, not just the views of the expert panel, but also the views of the audience that we did through the sort of interactive tool that we used for that event. And they gave us the views throughout the night. There were so many great questions, um, many of which we didn't get the chance to answer. But there was one I wanted to pick out, which I'm particularly keen to get your views on, Sharon, which was someone asked, what would it take to get a non-political group to bring in a just transition. And I I interpret that question as being about the fact that essentially it's politicians that set policy. And we've hit this kind of policy roadblock in terms of the way that we address uh, climate change and tackle climate change. Is there any space for a non-political group to come in and uh, make that kind of transition that obviously society needs? I mean, this is one of the great frustrations, isn't it, of not being able to talk through some of the questions. You know, I'd love to hear more about what that person was had in their mind, what they were thinking of in terms of a non-political group. I mean, one of the challenges in Australia is that this issue has become so politicised and so divisive that it's hard to see a way forward. Um, But alongside that, the polls and the research that's been done seem to suggest pretty clearly that the majority of Australians are really very concerned (laughs) about climate change and think there needs to be action and leadership around climate change. And the science is absolutely unambiguous. There are few issues on which there is less scientific debate about the evidence. The evidence is incredibly clear. So what scope is there for a non-political group? I mean, we do need to get beyond the politics of this issue. But I do think we need political leadership on this issue. And I wonder what a non-political group might look like. Um, I'm not sure that market forces are necessarily going to be the way to move forward on climate change. That's one non-political group. Perhaps some would argue that market market forces are actually highly political, but you know that's one way of thinking about it. We could think about civil society organisations, but they're often seen as having a political stake. So I'm not quite sure on an issue like this how we get to a non-political group, but I do think what we need is clear political leadership. Um, but the the roadblocks that we're seeing in Australia are, are really preventing that at the moment. I mean, I tend to think that political leadership comes from um, the cues that polit- our political leaders receive from the community. And when we're seeing big corporations making statements about the importance of addressing climate change, and some of them are, in fairness, and we're seeing, you know, sort of grassroots movements. We're seeing the climate strikes. We're seeing extinction, extinction rebellion. That surely all builds up to a kind of groundswell where it's got to get to a tipping point where the politicians come along for the ride. I mean, this does take us to a point that John Falzon made in the discussion today where he said that, um, you know, positive change, change towards social justice has never been made in Australia unless there has been community agitation um, for change. I don't think that's non-political. I think it's necessarily um, a political exercise. Um, but I think you're, you're probably right, Martin, and I think John's probably right, that 
community views on the importance of this issue are going to be needed to convince politicians to change their position. But there, there, there is a lot of outspokenness within the community about the importance of climate change. To date, we're not seeing that shift, at least the government's perspective. It's not yet shifting the dial. Uh, so many thanks for both of those questions. Really appreciate that. So the next thing I want to cover is welcoming some new members to our Facebook podcast group. This is always my favorite bit as I uh, uh, trip over and mangle people's names and apologize for doing so. So hello, Kate Caldwell, Saj Syed, Anthony Bowden, Jennifer Lise Marshment, MGMG, Mark Eggins, MJ Robinson, Dea Bapuli, Travis Lyons, Danielle McManus, and Catherine Marchman. It's so great to have you as part of the podcast group. And also special thanks to Danielle and Anthony for giving us suggestions for future episodes of the podcast. Danielle wrote, we should do a pod on regional development policy, e.g. Northern Australia. That sounds interesting. And Anthony said, why isn't anyone asking Hong Kong protesters and their supporters around the world what exactly they want? Do they want China to cut Hong Kong loose? Do they want China to become a democracy? What is the outcome they seek? What do you think about those ideas, Sharon? Yeah, I think the idea of regional um, development policy in Australia is, is a really great idea. Um, and certainly there's some, some really interesting research um, happening here at the ANU under one of our grand challenges um, around energy policy in northern Australia. So I think that's certainly something that would be great to have a closer look at, particularly as that research unfolds a little more. It would be fascinating to hear more from Hong Kong protesters. And Martin, maybe that's a field excursion for you where you need to get yourself over to Hong Kong and start doing a podcast for some of the protesters. Oh, I'd love to do that. I wonder if Crawford School's budget will uh, extend to that. Um, I, I can't miss the opportunity, though, to put a plug into another podcast that is produced here at ANU that has, actually has been doing some really great work in tracking the issues that Anthony has flagged there. It's a podcast called The Little Red Podcast. It's produced by Graham Smith here and Louisa Lim. They've done so so many great podcasts which have had a look at the Hong Kong protests and how they're all playing out and how China is responding. It's well worth a listen if you don't do so already. So thanks once again, Danielle and Anthony, for submitting those suggestions. And if you want to get your ideas for future episodes onto our radar, just join us on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, and reach out to us there. And if you do so, you will have the chance to win one of our Got 99 Problems But A Brew Ain't One Policy Forum Pod mugs. Uh, And not only will these mugs definitely make a fantastic addition to your work desk, but they will help drastically increase your social capital. So to get hands on one, either suggest a topic for a future Policy Forum pod that we later turn into an episode, or just keep sending those comments and questions in. And once you have had five of them read out on the podcast, we will send a mug over to you. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If you have, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Today's episode has been produced and written by Lydia Kim with post-production by Branko Svedajevich. Extra writing and essential moral support from Yulia Ahrens and executive production by me, Martin Pierce. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.